0: Two bone weary travelers. They trudge into the teeth of a howling wind and they make their way along a snow covered trail. They've walked all day through mountainous terrain. The sun has set, but they're a long ways from their destination. They're cold, they're exhausted, they're hungry. In their knapsacks, they carry water and some peanut butter sandwiches, which have become dry and brittle in the frigid mountain air. They consider stopping to eat, but it's that cold that invades their bones that tells them they better keep pressing on into the night. As they round a corner on the path, suddenly there's light that shines off their frozen faces. Through the trees, they see a massive, beautiful log cabin. Its windows... Gleaming with light, smoke swirls from the chimney. As they draw closer, the travelers peer through a large window and they see a sizable gathering of dinner guests seated around a huge table in a luxurious setting. The table is lavishly spread with the finest of food. There's a roaring fire that warms the well-lit room. The smell of fine food hovers in the night air. And it causes the travelers' mouths to water and their stomachs to ache with hunger. But what secures their attention the most is the joy on the faces of those that are enjoying this rich feast. Seated in the middle of the table, facing the window is a man who's clearly the host. His face exudes compassion and wisdom. His posture is relaxed but dignified. And as He speaks, His guests hang on every word and are filled with joy it's clear to see on their faces. They alternate between hearty laughter, deep thought, and misty eyes. And in that moment, as our weary travelers stare in on the scene, a desperate desire wells up within them to join the feast and to revel in the company of this intriguing host. So with anxious fear, they knock at the cabin's front door. They will pay any price to be at this feast. They cannot fully explain it, but if they are denied fellowship at this table, they know they will eat their sandwiches in the cold, and they will do so with broken hearts. Many of us will recognize in this parable faint hints of the desire in our hearts to commune with God at His table. We trudged along life's treacherous path, enduring bitter cold and spiritual hunger. a life without God. Then one day we came to the place on our journey where we see the splendor of God, the joy of fellowship with Him, and we want to become God's guest. And so we knock at this door, driven by the anticipation of experiencing joyful fellowship with Him and with those who love Him and see His worth. One of the greatest discoveries of Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ is the reality that God rejoices to welcome sinners into His fellowship. He's a God who is knowable, who longs to commune with us, And He calls us into that communion by His grace. This reality, this reality of God's knowability raises for us the all-important question throughout all of our lives, the all-important question of who is qualified to enter into this presence. Who is the one who enjoys communion with God? How do we identify that person? How do I know if I am in such communion with Him? In a more ancient text on the other side of the cross, this is the question that King David asked in Psalm 15. I invite you to this text if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. As we consider this psalm together, David is speaking about communion with God about being God's guest and who is the person that God hosts in His presence. In verse 1, he asks this all-important question for the ages. How do I know God? How do I know that I've entered into His communion? And then in verses 2 through the first part of verse 5, the answer to that question is given in summary form. It's not intended to be all-inclusive. It's a poem. It's a song. But we have the answer to this question in verses 2 through 5, and then at the end of verse 5, the psalm ends with God's word of promise to His people. Now we need, particularly as Gentiles so far removed from the context of David, to spend some considerable time understanding the question. We'll consider the answer. That's much more straightforward to us, but the question itself may be a bit veiled, But drawing upon our knowledge of the Old Testament, we can gain a great understanding of this important question. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in Your tent? Who shall dwell on Your holy hill? God has a tent? God has a holy hill? What is the meaning? We go back to Israel's history, and we remember that God used Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery The nation then slowly began its journey out of Egypt and through the Sinai Peninsula into the desert, moving from place to place as they worked their way to the promised land. And you remember that during these journeys, early on during these journeys, Moses set up what he called a tent of meeting. We read of it earlier this morning. A tent of meeting. Here God met with Moses, giving him guidance as he led Israel in the wilderness a place to meet with God, a tent. Now later, God commissions Moses to erect a tabernacle, a bit more elaborate we would assume, a collapsible tent made of animal skins and fabric stretched over a framework. Here God's presence resided behind the curtain, above the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place, in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. You remember its construction was made so that there were concentric circles of separation and limitation around this sacred tent. On the outside of the fence, that fabric fence with the metal posts, on the outside was all of the tribes of Israel save one. Only the Levites could enter in behind that tent, or behind that fence, and into the tent area. Here they would service the worship of Israel. Perform the ritual duties of Israel, but only the Levites. And then into the tent itself, into its two rooms, only the Aaronic priests out of the tribe of Levi. This continuing separation that worked itself finally then into the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum where only one priest from the family and clan of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, of the Israelites, only that one priest on the Day of Atonement could enter behind that veil. So God makes very clear that He must be approached on His terms, in His way, and that holiness was paramount as people approached Him. A distinctiveness, a preparation that was always provided by animal sacrifice and by careful ritual. So the tabernacle was a place, a tent, where God met with Israel, but only with great care to cross these various borders on God's terms. Who shall sojourn in His tent? David asks. Now it's interesting then also to consider that question in light of David's own day. Not only Israel's history in the past, but in David's own day. After residing in a number of locations through a series of events, King David pitched the sacred tent on Mount Zion, in the city of Jerusalem. And he says here, who will dwell on your holy hill? It is this holy hill that to which he refers. His plans were to erect, we remember, a permanent temple on that mount, and his son Solomon would eventually do that. But as David pens this psalm, the tabernacle is situated on Mount Zion. And the tabernacle's presence there renders... This to be God's holy hill. It is here in a unique sense that God meets with Israel. This is ground zero of God's presence on earth. It was a holy place on holy soil. When God called Abraham, that was holy ground. Take off your shoes. Burning bush in the desert. But now here, through time, God has brought His tabernacle, the place where God meets with Israel, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in David's city. It is positioned there. And so David asks, who will sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? It's really uh, two forms of the same question. To sojourn, to dwell. Consider those words. The Hebrew word for sojourn speaks of a resident alien, one who has left his homeland and now resides as an alien in a host community. So David pictures the traveler as an eager guest who seeks refuge in God's presence. The emphasis falls here not on entrance requirements notice, but on dwelling. That's an important consideration. It's not simply who can knock on the door and get in, but who is the person who's who's here in the presence of God. What kind of person dwells with Him? What kind of person sojourns with Him? So not so much who is worthy to become God's guest, but more a matter of what is true of those who are hosted by Him, who are His guests. Now what's the natural answer as we know the Old Testament? Who is able to enter into God's tent? We know this of course are the priests, and only the priests of Israel. But here David has something else entirely in mind, and his answer will bring that out. Here he uses the tabernacle to stand for communion with God. So in a literal sense, one could argue in David's day, only the priests can so dwell with God. But again, David's idea is different here. Who can dwell in God's tent means who is the person who is communing with God as God's guest? David answers that question not by any means in exhaustive terms, but with a representative list of virtues that mark those who commune with God. This is important. And when we consider the world's religions, they would not answer the question this way. There would be some discussion, some continuing discussion about ritual, maybe about what we know, our family connections, how we have made ourselves approved to God. But it's significant that the answer that David gives deals with virtue and with character, with who we are in our heart and soul. Who is it That can sojourn? Who is it that can come to find refuge in God's presence? Who is it that knows God and communes with Him? Here's the answer, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly. The Hebrew phrase does not speak of moral perfection, but the Hebrew word does speak of wholeness and here of consistent, virtuous behavior. Behavior that is whole, that is complete. One who is blameless is one who lives faithfully and with moral integrity. He or she is one who, secondly, does what is right. Those who dwell in fellowship with God live godly lives. God does not host people who perform religious duties merely. God hosts those who do what is right, who honor His law, who treat others faithfully. They do right. Thirdly, they speak the truth in their heart. The idea here speaks the truth from his heart is how it could be translated. In other words, such a person has a pure heart that does not feed lies to his or her tongue. The person God welcomes into His company is one who uses no evasive words. No white lies. No flattery. No deception. His tongue speaks the truth she speaks what corresponds to reality because they are aware that God witnesses every thought of the heart and so what is in the heart comes out on the tongue and it's all true it's reality it's honesty we got a let me quick pause commercial break here we go through a list of virtues It's easy to fall asleep somewhere in the midst of this list of virtues as we take one at a time. But I want to pour over each one just briefly. But to consider and ask, does this mark my life? Does this demonstrate who I am in my communion with God? Who can dwell in His tent? Those who walk blamelessly, who do what is right, who speak the truth from the heart. Verse 3 who does not slander with his tongue. We turn here now to some negative ideas. One that does not slander with his tongue. The one who dwells in God's presence does not use his tongue to harm others. This person knows how to hold their tongue so as not to destroy the reputation of other people. A tongue is not used to harm, but to build up. Not to tear down, but to encourage Does not slander with his tongue. Next, does does no evil to his neighbor. Probably a direct connection there with the slander idea. But neighbor here is not a person living next door. Let's remember how Jesus defined neighbor. Not because He redefined it, but because He simply defined what neighbor is. A neighbor is anyone who's next to you. Whoever that is, wherever you enter into contact. The person who lives as God's guest is one who does right by others, not one who harms and wrongs others, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Verse 3 closes out. Like neighbor, friend is used here, I think, generically. To take up a reproach against someone is to badmouth them. To consider their life, to use words to say, this person lacks significance, worth, Potential influence, righteousness, in some sense of criticism. To take up a reproach is to use ideas and to use words that speak ill of others and seek to tear them down in maybe their own estimation, but at least in our own and often in the estimation of others. This does not describe one who walks in fellowship with God. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now this does not give us freedom to hate godless people. We are to love our enemies, as Jesus taught us. We're to graciously point godless people to saving grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But loyalty to God will naturally put one at odds with those who oppose Him. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Vile here, the Hebrew word speaks of one who holds God in contempt. One who boldly despises God. If there is loyalty in my soul toward the Lord, there's going to be a certain reaction to those who hate Him, despise Him, and reject Him. If I found in conversation a man who was mocking my wife and speaking ill of her, should I smile and bless him? Should I joke with him? It would be more virtuous if I punched him in the mouth than that I smiled and enjoyed it. Now, I think there's probably a better way than to punch him in the mouth as well, but you you see the idea. Would you rejoice with that husband who's listening to someone tear down his wife and speak ill of her? We sense that immediately in our loyalty to one another and to those whom we love. If we love God, it won't be any different. For there are those who despise Him, reject Him, and speak ill of Him, who are opposed to Him. In our eyes, those people will be, in the right sense of the word, despised. If I truly love God, I'm not going to be okay with those who tear down His reputation. It might be as simple as this, by way of simple application, Christians adoring celebrities who despise God. It might be an entertainer, a movie actor, a pro athlete, an author. We're impressed, we elevate individuals who really despise God. Now, people who despise God can do great things. And it's not evil for me necessarily to appreciate their abilities. But we must be careful not to adore people who view God with disgust. Those who dwell with God do not dwell happily with God-haters. My loyalty to the Lord will demand that I respond in this way to those who despise Him. And on the other hand, as the verse continues, we honor those who fear the Lord. There should be a love for others who revel at the banquet table in communion with God. Our travelers, as they stand at the window, if there's someone who stands in ridicule and hatred of this gathering, in bitterness, not wanting presence in it, These travelers identify more with the people at the meal. I want a part of this. I want to enter in. And so it is with us, as John puts it in his first epistle, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So those who dwell with God, there's a loyalty to others who dwell with God and walk in communion with Him. And there is an orientation toward those who despise Him, a willingness to win, to reach out, and to love in an evangelistic way, but not a loyalty to them, and a rejection of them as they reject God. Another idea at the end of verse 4, "...who swears to his own hurt and does not change." The idea here, I think, is that I agree to fulfill a future obligation and I remain true to my word even when it hurts me to do so. I don't break a contract because it becomes more convenient at the time to do that. I don't break my word for the convenience of it. There's nothing evil about seeking to get out of a vow that proves harmful, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. But at the end of the day, I need to honor my vow if I am not released from it. The point is that personal integrity is more important than pragmatic convenience. This is not a person who simply does what works out best for them, but a person who is true to their word and is willing even to suffer in order to maintain their integrity. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest. In the context, I do not believe that ever in the Old Testament that this is a law against loaning money at interest. That we are called as God's people if we ever loan money that is always without interest. I don't think that's the context. Understood in context, money could be loaned out for business transactions. The context is always it was common indeed in that day to loan money to people in great financial crisis, and thus to profit from their misery. And the interest rates that were charged were commonly 30%, sometimes as much as 50%. So you have a situation where people get in financial trouble, and to get out of that trouble in that setting was to enter into slavery. You find someone in that position, and you loan them money, at great and exorbitant interest, what you do is actually become the master. And you step in to become the one who has enslaved them with your money. Those who dwell with God don't do that. They don't use money to gain advantage and to harm, but to serve God. He does not take a bribe. Direct connection here. Bribes were commonly used by a wealthier person to gain advantage over a poorer person. Justice was perverted by purchasing a favor from a greedy and dishonest official. Financial integrity and the love of justice marks those who walk in fellowship with God. There is a love for the weak in God's heart. And there's a love for the weak, for the poor, for the needy, for the desperate, in the heart of those who walk in fellowship with Him. Now as I mentioned, this is not an exhaustive or comprehensive list. It's a representative list. Secondly, it is a list of more subtle heart attitudes we notice. There's nothing said here about murder, about adultery, or grand larceny, or kidnapping, or something like that. Obviously, it's just a representative list, but I think it is interesting that it does, not, it does not even mention idolatry. It's simply looking at hard attitude, at some of these subtle distinctions of those who really walk in fellowship with God. Now, those who walk in communion with the Lord do not do so because of who they are, because that is because of who they know or what they believe on paper as such. But it's nothing less than holiness that's necessary to walk in communion with God. Without holiness, Hebrews 12.14 says, no one will see God. The psalm then closes out with this great promise in verse 5, He who does these things shall never be moved. Never be moved. To be moved is the opposite of to dwell in verse 1. Who is it that will dwell with stability and security in the presence of God? The person who does these things will never be moved. This one will stand solid and not be tipped over by this world and its allures. To never be moved means to enjoy a solid standing and permanent fellowship with God. Those who live above reproach have nothing to fear. Their courage does not rest in alliance with strong people. It is rooted in their faith in the Lord. Their confidence, as the next psalm will say in verse 8, I will not be shaken. My confidence is in my dwelling with God. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. Not because of who I know. Not even because ultimately of what I know but ultimately because I'm dwelling in fellowship with the God who changes those who dwell with Him. This great promise, He who does these things shall never be moved. Not because He does these things, but because He's dwelling and sojourning with the Lord. Are you listening? Are you hearing these words of God? I think as we tune our ears to God's counsel here, if we are responsive to the Holy Spirit at all, there is undoubtedly then a nagging concern that rises in our hearts. You may well say, listen, I I truly desire fellowship with God. I want to be God's permanent guest. I very much want a place at this table. But I have a problem. I'm sometimes lacking in these virtues. I don't always do what is right. In fact, this week I could form a list of things that I did that were flat wrong. I use my tongue to harm other people. To tear down their reputation. Sometimes I shade the truth. Okay, that itself was a lie. Sometimes I just lie. To protect myself, to gain an advantage. Honestly, I don't always reject those who despise God. Sometimes I'm very drawn to them. My loyalty to the Lord is weak. I even idolize people in rebellion against Him. I think better of them than I do of His own people sometimes. Yes, I fail to honor those who fear God. Sometimes I don't even like those who fear God, let alone love them. You may say, I must admit, sometimes I'm a pragmatist and I don't always use money or influence honestly. At the end of the day, I'd have a hard time saying that I'm blameless. I'm not always a person of moral integrity truth is, I read this psalm, and I worry. There's great news in this psalm. And we might miss it if, we not, if we're not careful. But there's great news here in this psalm. Psalm 15 is not a list of entrance requirements. This is not a list of virtues that you must bring with you out from the cold. Not virtues that you must display at the front door as you knock and ask entrance of God and His fellowship. The truth that Scripture makes very clear, God's counsel also says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God knows this. He says not one of us is good in ourselves. But the good news is that the holy place where man meets with God is no longer a tent. It is a person, one who tented among us, the Lord Jesus Christ, John 1.14. The meeting place with God is not a tent, but a person who stood in our place and bore the penalty of our sin, who bore the penalty of our violations of this very psalm. The good news is that Jesus Christ died as the sacrificial Lamb of God to whom all the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed. He died as a substitute in place of sinners paying the penalty of our sin. The good news is that the garments of righteousness required to join God's feast are supplied free of charge by Jesus Christ. They're His robes of righteousness and He gives them to those who trust Him. His righteousness then is placed on our account. We dwell with God not on the virtues of our own righteous deeds, but on the virtue of His. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 15 perfectly. And He stands outside, as it were, on the cold porch. And He gains access to the Father's banquet hall for us. Entrance into the fellowship with God comes not by obedience to a list of moral requirements. It comes by faith in the Son. Once in, Once in, and that's what the psalm's talking about, who is it that dwells with God? Once in fellowship with Him, then He begins to slowly change us. So that by His grace, through His sanctifying power, we walk blamelessly. Little by little, turning from our sin, rooting it out, walking in righteousness, in fellowship with His people, knowing God, and changing See, he's talking not about those who are outside in the cold of sin. He's talking about those who are inside and being transformed by their relationship with God. So, the righteous standards of God's law are not an entrance requirement, they are the results of walking in fellowship with Him. At the door of God's fellowship, it matters not what you bring to the party you are cold, you are hungry, you are weary spiritually. You're a sinner who has absolutely no right to walk in to this feast. But if you come humbly, admitting your sin, leaving it by turning from it, if you come trusting Jesus' work on the cross, His resurrection power, you can be brought into fellowship with God and God will change you. He will work righteousness in you. You can't sit with Him at His table and not change. And I think there is for us on this side of the cross also some hints here of our membership in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 6 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I think he speaks there individually as God comes to dwell within us, but certainly corporately in the context of this book. We are the temple. We as the church are the temple of the living God. It is here that God dwells in fellowship. Ephesians 2 and verse 21, we are the body of Christ. quote, A holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. It is in the church of the living God where we commune with the Lord as the church of the living God. The church then is to be a holy people called to live holy lives. And we are to evidence that holiness in our communion with one another and with Christ. We're called to display the glories of God to a needy and watching world that stands in the cold, dark night of sin. We are to evidence then corporately as the new temple of God, as the new building that God is building up by His Spirit, we're to evidence here how people change when they walk with God when they hear His Word by His Spirit facing conviction, repenting of sin, encouraging and building one another up in the faith, it's here in fellowship with one another that we display to the world what it means to sit at God's table and to feast with Him. To those shaky and fallen around us, we offer the hope of a fraternity of believers who will never be moved because our roots are not in self and our performance and our ritual. Our roots are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. If you've not entered into that fellowship by faith, you don't have a sense that you have a seat at the table. I plead with you to come in out of the cold. The host welcomes you. God invites you into His presence with open arms. And we who were once beggars, who now dine at this table, we welcome You as well. We encourage You to turn from sin and to be reconciled to God. You will never regret the day that you enter fellowship with God. Never. Trust His Son. Leave your ways behind and join the feast today come in out of the cold and dwell with God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we plead in prayer on behalf of anyone separated from Christ this morning, we plead that You bring them to reconciliation. That You'd show them the work of Jesus Christ not as myth, but as ultimate reality. Bring saving light to dawn. This day, we pray, according to Your will and purposes. For those of us who know You, I pray that we'd be challenged again, that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. But I pray, Father, that with that challenge, we would also be moved to walk in closer fellowship, to be changed by our vision of Your face, to be changed by our presence in Your company. I plead, Father, that this holiness of life would continue to characterize us, and there is no way that we can honor You in this message today considering the psalm if we do not look at our sin And resolve to leave it behind. There are perhaps specific matters of conviction that have been brought to the attention of Your people as we've labored here in the Word today. I pray that it would not fade from memory. But I pray that we would address sin and hate it. Teach us to hate sin. And to long to be a holy people as we walk in fellowship with You. I pray on behalf of this church that You would purify and strengthen us and teach us Your truth. We praise You for Your goodness to us in Christ. We thank You that our righteousness comes from Him and that the transforming power to be the people that You want us to be comes from Your gracious hand. We pray for it now and ask that You will teach us to walk in fellowship with You. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you take your hymnals and turn to number 654. Let's stand together and